Footing. I'm Dove Tuzman. I'm joined here this evening by Sammy Schwartz and Rabbi Yarden Bloomstein. We're going to tackle the difficult subject of teen suicide this evening. The title of the show is Invisible Agony, Preventing Teen Suicide. I want to introduce my special guests. Sammy Schwartz is on the line from Illinois. Sammy is a survivor of self-harm and suicidal ideations. She's a 20-year-old student, friend, and sister. Her life mission is to help struggling teenagers care for their mental health and develop greater self-worth. Sammy is studying at Goucher College, where she plans to major in psychology and become a therapist so she can help others through the darkness in the way she was helped. Welcome, Sammy. I think we've got you on the line. <laughs> We're also joined by Rabbi Yarden Bloomstein, and Rabbi Yarden is the teen director and mentor at Friendship Circle and You Matter, organizations that foster awareness around teen mental health and empower teens to support one another. Rabbi Bloomstein also leads workshops in the Detroit metro area, training teens and adults on the Safe Talk methodology, which stands for Suicide Alertness for Everyone. And he has been developing a community-wide support network in his area. Rabbi Bloomstein lives in Michigan with his wife, Bela, six kids, and with God's help, a seventh child on the way. Rabbi Bloomstein holds two rabbinical degrees, including a doctorate in Jewish law. Sammy, Rabbi Yarden, welcome. Hopefully, we'll Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, it's, I, I appreciate you guys making yourself vulnerable tonight. I'll join you in that. This is a topic that's very close to home for me. As some listeners know, I spent some time, in addition to having suicidal ideation as something on the order of one-third, if not more, of teenagers do, uh, when I was a teenager, as an adult, I had very severe circumstantial or situational depression when... I spent uh, about ten and a half months incarcerated, talked about that in previous shows, and uh, came to the point of asking for help from lawyers and and friends to uh, smuggle me something in, in prison so I could kill myself. And that's a, I've gone into some of the background for that in other shows, and I, I felt like uh, as I began to learn more about this topic, it became clear to me that the most um, acute end of the spectrum in in the area of uh, suicidal depression, whether it's uh, chronic mental illness related or situational, as they call it, uh, is with adolescents. And the the rate of increase is just extraordinary. It's been increasing for a couple of decades and has spiked in this pandemic period. And we don't have exact numbers yet, but 
There are organizations like the National Alliance for Mental Illness, um, SAFE, and others who estimate that uh, teen suicides in the United States, for example, are up as high as 60 to 70 percent um, since March on a periodic basis. You've had massive spikes in calls to uh, help uh, suicide hotlines, and there's a general mental health crisis going on around the world in the context of lockdowns and isolation, and and this is particularly acute for teens where uh, social contact is is so critical to um, healthy emotional and psychological development. But as I was researching this, I was overwhelmed by the imbalance between what I would call um, kind of academic resources looking in, observational resources versus experiential resources, uh, people that have gone through that are survivors of suicidal ideation and self-harm, and people that are in the trenches working on prevention. So I searched for uh, guests this, the, for this show that really could give that perspective, and I am honored that you both have been willing to um, open up. Sammy, I, I want to start with you. Sammy Schwartz, you um, have put yourself out there working with teens, and because you identify because you've gone through that experience quite recently. Do you want to maybe share with our audience a little bit about your experience personally? Oh, thank you. Um, my family struggles with addiction. I have two brothers currently are struggling to be sober. So growing up, I was given a lot of stress in my household. And one way I used to cope with things being very stressful is self-harm. Um, I self-harm for years, and it became out of control when I turned 16. I was um, admitted into uh, two psychiatric hospitals in hopes to help me feel safe in my own body again. And when I was 17, I thankfully went to rehab in California, and that's where my life truly changed and began. Sammy, how, how old were you when you began self-harming? And if you could you explain what that, what that means? What, is, what was the way that that manifested for you? Um, when I was five years old, I started having tendencies. I would run into walls, bang my head against windows, and jump downstairs. And really, when I got to high school, it, it intensified. And um, my self-harm really looked like I was burning myself. And um, it really turned into kind of like an addiction where I couldn't stop burning myself. And I, it was hard to ask for help. And I, something I never really understood until I um, started the recovery process. Sammy, who, who are the resources for you that, that helped you along the way? Um, my number one resource is with us today. He is the first adult I've ever spoke about, um, about my self-harm and suicidal ideations. It's Yarden. Um, so he was my main support system at home. Um, he's visited me in the hospitals and, um, has been a great, you matter has been also very life-changing and, um, Yeah. Yarden, one of the one of the things that's been 
surprising to me in my journey learning about this topic and as a father is that, as Sammy just illustrated, often it isn't the parent that is the most effective resource in in preventing um, a suicidal act and those resources can come often from a parent on recommendation but sometimes uh, children particularly teens feel more comfortable speaking to others whether they're peers or adults and obviously that's something that manifested in your relationship uh, with Sammy can you speak to that how how as parents do do we navigate that that's such a great point um and really it's an honor to be here um when you look at some of the therapeutic tools that leads towards a child and specifically a teen during their developmental years like through high school really mid-middle school into early college um some will argue that the greatest anchor or resource is having a trusted adult um whether you'll say that's the greatest or one of the top, but there's such a value in having someone that a teen can trust and rely upon and call upon if they need. And whether they call them or not, the very fact that they have such a person is already such an anchor. Dr. Gregory Jantz and others that that focus on teen suicide and prevention talk about the knowing the difference or recognizing the difference between discernment and rescue. And as parents, we often feel like we own uh, the physical well-being of our, of our, of our children, certainly legally in, in this country until, until they're 18, we do. But knowing that, understanding that we don't own the emotional and psychological life and that, in fact, there's, there's, instead of being a rescuer, we need to first be a discerner in just understanding what's going on without without judgment that is so hard for so many of us as parents i want to come back sammy to you and from a from a teen or post-teen perspective in a moment from a parent perspective you're about to be god willing the father of, of seven beautiful children how do you get out of the feeling of ownership for your child's well-being of needing to be the rescuer versus just allowing yourself to release and be a friend or someone who is the discerner? That's a, that's a really tough and great question. Um, first of all, that, that question almost implies that I'm doing a perfect job with my kids, which would be completely inaccurate. Um, you know, I think children are, especially our children, are the best at pushing our buttons. And, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of education that children do to their parents. And because of all that, you know, there's a certain ability that a non-parent has that's seeing a different perspective than parents have um, by being caught up in the family unit. Right. And in no way is a parent unimportant. Parents are super important. Um, there's a lot of things that only parents can do. Um, but having someone on the outside once in a while give a peek in and be a support offers something that sometimes within the normal storm of life or the typical storm of life, parents can sometimes be less than ready to discern, so to speak. None, part of, I think, the release, at least in my life, is that is understanding that we're never going to be a perfect parent. <laughs> I often feel like I'm a one out of ten. Um, so it's uh, that that's that's a natural 
um, feeling. We're on equal footing. I'm Dove Tusman. I'm joined by Sammy Schwartz, who is a survivor of self-harm and suicidal ideation. Rabbi Yarden Blumstein, who focuses on creating support networks amongst both teens and adults uh, aimed at mental health and self-care and suicide prevention. Our topic tonight is Invisible Agony, Preventing Teen Suicide. Our number to participate in this conversation, I so encourage folks to call in whether you are a survivor yourself, whether you've been touched by this, uh, by loss uh, from a, uh, in your uh, inner circle, uh, whether your parents struggling with these issues, uh, whether you're a, a clinical social worker focusing on these issues, please participate. Our number is 718-303-9090, 718-303-9090. If you're shy about being on the radio, you really want to rena- remain anonymous. First of all, you don't have to give your name when you call in. You can also text a question or comment to 917-428-4062. That's 917 917- Four two eight four zero six two to text in a question or comment for Sammy Schwartz and Rabbi Yarden Blumstein. We're going to take a break in a moment. I want to uh, share with you, Sammy and Rabbi Yarden, the reason why I called tonight's show "Invisible Agony," and it relates actually to the, uh, reading the. The description, almost the prediction of his own suicide from one of my favorite novelists, David Foster Wallace, who I think spoke so eloquently about the pain and helped us get away from this idea that, oh, just buck up and, you know, be be more courageous. And unfortunately, I think that there's an element in Western culture that goes back actually 2000 years that stylizes what suicide is about, what suicidal ideation is about. You know, going back to Seneca the Younger, who is a Stoic, Stoical philosopher uh, about uh, 2,000 years ago in Rome, said sometimes even to live is an act of courage. And while that is true, uh, the, you know, suicidal depression is both related to mental illness that is outside of someone's control at, at, a, at a given moment, and also you can be you can be triggered or turned upside down in your life um, by a situation that uh, that isn't just about kind of bucking up. Even Albert Camus in the early part of the 20th century said, "In the end, one needs more courage to live than to kill himself." And and again, there are these. Um, mythologies that kind of exist in in our, in our culture. So I just want to read for you guys quick before the break this this quote from David Foster Wallace who said, "The person who tries to kill herself doesn't do so out of quote unquote hopelessness or an abstract conviction conviction that life's assets and debits don't square, and surely not because death suddenly seems appealing. The person in whom its invisible agony reaches a certain unendurable level." will kill herself the same way as a trapped person will eventually jump from the window of a burning high-rise. It's painful. I've read that quote like in preparation for the show probably half a dozen times, and it's painful each time I, I read it. So I'd like to get your reaction to that, that, that sense of being trapped, the invisible agony, and the issue of being seen or not seen. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back on equal footing with our guests, Sammy Schwartz and Rabbi Yarden Blumstein. Summer like water, 
Footing with Dove Tuzman is sponsored by MDCS Dermatology, your experts in skincare. With two Manhattan locations and four offices in Long Island, including Plainview and Comac, the dermatologists and skincare surgeons at MDCS are proud to be affiliated with the Albert Einstein College of Medicine and New York Presbyterian Hospital. So schedule your next skin exam in one of MDCS's convenient New York area locations. To make an appointment, go to www.mdcs.live or call 212-661-DERM. That's 212-661-3376. You can even schedule a virtual video visit with MDCS's board-certified dermatologists from the comfort and safety of your own home. So go to www.mdcs.live or call 212-661-3376. And don't forget to mention Equal Footing for 15% off all cosmetic procedures. I've been caught. You're back on Equal Footing. I'm Dove Tuzman. I'm here with my guests, Sammy Schwartz and Rabbi Yardin Bloomstein, talking about the invisible agony of suicidal depression amongst teens and prevention. We left before the break with the quote from the novelist David Foster Wallace, who took his own life about being trapped between the terror of the flames of, of life and the terror of taking one's life. Is that, Sammy, in your experience, an accurate way for us to understand what's going on when someone is contemplating taking their own life? That really resonates with me on a very personal level. Um, A lot of moments when I was deep into my suicidal ideations, sometimes I would say, I want to kill myself, but I don't want to die. And um, there's a very fine line that follows so that being terrified in your own body really resonates with me. Yeah, I think there's like, I was trying to burst this this mythology a little bit around that, you know, if, if you kill yourself, you're taking the a less courageous path. And I think when we say that to people, or when society takes that view, we mean the best. But it, it's not always helpful, as I understand it. It it's it doesn't it doesn't really get at the pain. Did did is that is that correct? I mean, feel free to for, feel free to contradict me, Sammy. What, what feels helpful when someone's going through suicidal ideation? It's very hard to help someone who doesn't want to be helped. But I think something that has made a shift in my life is the validation of one's experiencing and not to um, downplay someone's depression. Oh, don't cry. You'll get over it. Pick yourself back up. You'll be fine in a week. Um, It's very invalidating and it makes people want to just hide what they're feeling from others. Right. I I think that this, through the, the literature, what stands out most of all is understanding as opposed to trying to rescue. Rabbi Yerden, how do you, if you feel like someone doesn't want help or you don't know how to access that person, what do you do? 
a great question on so many different levels. Um, you know, it's interesting that the studies show that 96% of the time that someone struggles with suicide ideation, they want someone to know about it. They give hints, they give signs, they give some way of trying to, quote-unquote, ask for help. There is a 4% that's not. And then when we start talking about what asking for help looks like or how do we access somebody, um, how do we be there for them, how do, we, how do we listen to them, how do we show empathy for them? There's a great clip by Brene Brown, it's like a minute and a half long, of the difference between compassion and empathy. And, you know, that's, that's part of, the, you know, our part. How do we reach out to somebody in a way that we can be there for them on their terms? And if I'm not the right person, then how do I start bringing in the right person? How do I start finding the right person to help them? What are the signs, if, if, you, if you're not picking up on that message, you're saying that a vast majority of cases are some message that's, that's discernible, but if you're not picking up on it as a parent or a concerned peer adult, what are the typical signs that someone is struggling with suicidal depression? Um, so first of all, just because the signs are there, they're not always the same. In other words, people can give limited signs to a lot of signs, to select groups, to everybody. Like, there's a spectrum of how that works. Mm -hmm. The golden rule is a change in pattern. Like, we see some sort of change, whether that's in emotion, in behavior, in expression, in action, whether it's that, um, you know, the person goes to being really recessive, really isolated, really depressed. It's even the other way around. They have a major change in pattern where they've been down for quite a long time, and now they're perked up and happier. Um, whether their eating pattern changes, their, their form of dress, their interest in sports, their relationships, mm -hmm. their social settings, any major change is usually a, a sign of concern. So, for example, it's in terms of physical signs, it's not necessarily that someone's sleeping all day, it could be that they have insomnia when they were sleeping normally, or the opposite. They are sleeping more and uh, than, they, than they needed before, uh, or what you're describing in terms of behavior and emotional state seems like it's not only depressive, but also manic, like if someone's acting more up in, an, in, a, in a way that feels out of character. Is that, is that, are those some of the things that, that resonate for you? I think, yeah, first of all, I think if someone has that question, it means they're already aware that something's going on with somebody. And the only question is what's going on with them. In other words, you know, a lot of times I'll get phone calls from people and they'll say, well, I'm really concerned about this person. Here's what I'm seeing. Do you think there's what to be concerned about? And I'm like, well, we've already answered that question. You said you're concerned about them. I think there's what to be concerned about. And what you might be picking up on an emotional level and intellectually you can't pinpoint just yet may be more accurate than you're aware of. But even using manic and depressive sometimes also expresses extremes that don't necessarily need to be there. Someone who's rather quiet and rather down and, and rather very reserved, and you've known them for a long time, either because maybe you're a part of their family or you're their teacher or their peer or some other setting, and today they're upbeat. Mm -hmm. there's, a, there's, there's things that can play into that. Either they're having a good day or maybe their life situation has changed or maybe their medications have changed, or maybe they're with a therapist now that's being more successful with them, or maybe they have a plan, and we really want to know about that. It, it's also m more prevalent than I would have imagined. I mean, just in the United States alone, about 50,000 people 
take their lives every year. Uh, even prior to the pandemic, it was estimated that as many as one-fifth of uh, teenagers uh, suffer from suicidal ideation that is considered you know, risky or, or real enough to be deeply concerned about. Uh, and those numbers have spiked during the pandemic. Uh, on the other hand, there's a a positive out there if you are able to discern that there's an issue and get treatment. It's, I've heard that upwards of 80%, for example, according to save.org, of people that seek treatment for depression, and as many as 90% of, of teens are successful in, in whether it's cognitive therapy or medication. So is, does that mean it's really an issue of, I don't want to use the word diagnosis, but is it an issue of discernment? And, and we do have the, the social cultural remedies if we can just kind of get the help. I really want to make a blanket statement and say that that would solve everything, but discernment would be a, a major step forward because it's very hard to treat people when we're not aware that we need to treat them. It's also what we're seeing during the pandemic because a lot of people have fallen off the radar naturally due to being either online schooled or just really shrinking their social networks to limit exposure points. And then what happens is we don't even realize that they're struggling because we're not seeing them or engaging with them or engage with them a lot less. And it's really hard to help people when we don't know that they're struggling. There was an article, Sammy, in the New York Times today, coincidentally talking about teen mental health in the context of the pandemic and referring to isolation in particular as a major driver of increased uh, incidences of, of suicidal depression in, in the teen cohort. Is it as simple as that? Is, is it about even with all of the social media that we have at our, at, you know, at our fingertips, is it as simple as we're, we're, we're more isolated from each other or is there something deeper going on in our society from your perspective? Um, I believe this matter, and for each individual person, it's extremely complex. Some people can um, be in a crowded room and feel alone, and some people can be alone and still feel alone. So in regards to the isolation aspect, I think it is an all-time high right now, and a lot of my friends are struggling. But I don't know necessarily if I'd say that is the only uh, contributing factor within. I, I don't know if that makes sense. What are some of the other factors that you see in the peers that you work with that's driving people in that, what Dr. Gregory Jantz calls the current of despair? Um, I believe a lot of my friends are dealing with family conflicts, especially because um, we're locked up in a house all day, and if there's family problems at home, they're very um, emphasized during this time. Mm. Um, I believe in my family, that is what I struggle with. Um, is the family con conflicts are a big contributor to falling into suicidal ideations. Sammy, 
there, as you were speaking, a question came in here via text, and I'm just going to repeat our number and uh, for calling in and our text number as well. If you want to participate in this discussion on air, whether you want to remain anonymous, you don't, you don't have to give your name, or you can if you'd like. You can call 718-303-9090, and you can text a question anonymously if you'd like to 917-428-4062. Samuel, we just got a text question that and this this person asks, as a friend or potential support, how do you push through the barrier people who are going through suicidal thoughts or depression may put up? It's not uncommon for someone going through that to push people away. Um, that's a really good point. There are times in my life where I wanted to push people away, especially, um, I guess, caregiver figures. Mm-hmm. Um I think persistence, because sometimes what happens is you push someone away and you really want them to pull back. Um, so my advice would to be to talk, um, if you could talk to some sort of um, figure that can help guide you through someone, because it is a lot of pressure to deal with on your own. Um, but I would say if someone's pushing you away, persist, even if it makes them a little uncomfortable at first. They'll be happy for it in the long run. That's really interesting to hear, and I'm sure very good advice. And and to the point that we brought up earlier, Sammy, is in your case, Rabbi Yarden was an, a critical part of your traversing this and, and healing. Is your experience that adults in general are more effective with the with the teens that you work with, or peers are more are more effective in discerning what's going on and providing support? Um, I believe there's a balance. I know some of my friends truly find such comfort when realizing they're not alone when they're struggling and they've had the same thoughts as them too. In my case, I found my comfort through um, adult and caregiver figures. Um, So I think there's a balance. And I really think that there needs to be a bridge between peers and caregivers because again it's it's a lot of pressure to put on one teenager um to try to i guess quote solve the issue by themselves and rabbi yarden do you explicitly seek out kind of a, a web of support for the for the teens that you work with amongst their peers or do you not want to kind of get up in their business and let the person you're working with signal that it's okay for you to contact peers? Um, there's actually, you know, we talk about, there's so many articles and books on the idea of a wraparound approach, and just one of them that comes to mind, it's called It Takes a Family. You know, there's so many natural resources in people's lives, and as we can access those resources and as we can connect that resource wheel, we can strengthen the person's already existing resources. So if there are peers that that person is turning to, then, yeah, connecting them is great because we can build a support front. Obviously, working with the parents, working with the therapist, working with whatever other supports are there, it empowers everybody more, puts everybody on the same page and heading towards solution, which is ultimately really the goal. That's such a challenge and so important. I think sometimes as parents, we feel isolated. There are a lot of parents who describe in the recovery process and some, and very sadly also after the loss of a child 
that they they felt like out of the loop. You hear this all the time. And so figuring out how to be in the loop in a way that is non-threatening is important. I think it brings us back to that issue also of discernment and understanding versus rescue and ownership. We're going to take another break. We're here on equal footing with Sammy Schwartz, a survivor of self-harm and suicidal ideations. Great courage in being with us tonight. And Rabbi Yarden Blumstein, who works with teens and adults creating support to drive suicide prevention. You're on equal footing. We'll be right back. Anymore, I want them to turn black. You're on equal footing with Dove Tusman. Tonight's program is brought to you by Mechanical Art Capital. Mechanical Art Capital offers financing to watch collectors and watch dealers from anywhere in the world. Unlock the cash value of your watch collection or inventory through Mechanical Art Capital's guaranteed buyback contracts. For more information, call Mechanical Art Capital at 833-209-0972. Again, that's 833-209-0972. You can also go to mechanicalartcapital.com. Operators are standing by. You're back on equal footing with my guests, Sammy Schwartz and Rabbi Yarden Blumstein. We're going to take a caller in a moment, but I want to talk about, riff on, a, on something you said before the break, Sammy, and it has to do with this concept of kind of feeling damaged. Uh, it It seems that one of the traps that we sometimes fall into as we're working around suicide prevention in general and specifically with teens is approaching the person as if they're damaged somehow. And often my understanding is people going through that. I know that was true in my own life when I struggled with suicidal ideation. I felt damaged. I felt broken. How do you, how do you interact in such a way that it doesn't make you feel damaged and instead makes you feel held or, or loved or whole? I struggled with that mindset, too. Um, I took a gap year, and while I was there speaking to an adult about my history of being in psychiatric facilities, I kept saying, there's something wrong with me. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a piece of me missing that I just can't fill. And I remember the adult talking to me. She said, you are whole. There's nothing wrong with you. You are whole. Sometimes it's all the external factors it has nothing to do with what's inside. And I remember just crying because it meant so much to me to realize I'm a whole person. And these struggles just make me into a person who's just as whole. And I don't know, maybe even holier, if that makes sense. <laughs> I love that, whole and holier. <laughs> I do want to get into the issue of, of faith and spirituality and how that affects this. And I think my comments might be unexpected there. But. Rabbi Yarden, what do you what do you have to say about that sense of 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 someone feeling broken or or damaged? How do you approach without being kind of pedantic or paternalistic? Yeah, I mean that's a I 
there's there's things that play into that, such as stigma. You know, the idea that if someone has a mental health challenge or a mental illness, that they're broken or not good enough. And just like we wouldn't do that with any physical ailment or any physical challenge, um, I think that's that's on on so to speak the people supporting to go the extra yard to let the person know. And not just through words, but through showing emotionally that there's not only is there nothing wrong with that person, there's so much, you know, inherent value and awesomeness within that person. And, you know, it's obviously a challenge and a journey, and it's a worthwhile journey. So one of the things you hear from parents a lot, whether they're on the other side of the the healing process or, or God forbid, if they've lost a child is the sense that they were lost. I talked about being out of the loop, but also lost. I wanted to share two comments that I received in uh, in the context of this show from from friends who are struggling with this with their own teen children. I obviously am not going to say their names. Um, one said that she felt as a mother that she it was the end of the innocence of a, being a parent that. Uh, and this is a, a, a parent of a number of children, not quite as many as you, Rabbi Yarden, but uh, many. And, and there was a she really poignantly talked about feeling helpless and um, and feeling like she was, like I said, like the end of the innocence. Another uh, friend who's a, of a father who dealt with this issue at home also said he never felt so lost and used so useless. When the when the life of, of of his son was in the balance and and we sometimes forget the need for mental uh, health care for parents and caregivers that in order to provide the support for someone going through suicidal ideation or depression you yourself may uh, need to seek out care is is that is that, is that accurate Rabbi Yodan or am I overstating that. You know, you could not overstate that enough. I think, you know, we think that, you know, it's not about us. If we could just negate ourselves enough, then we can just focus on the person that needs help. And yet, the more we support ourselves and the more we invest in the support system, keeping it strong, the better support the person's going to get. And, you know, we see this in the physical framework, too. When someone sprains their foot and they're overusing the other foot, you know, they have to go to physical therapy to rebalance that, and they have to do the work to rebalance that appropriately so they don't strain or hurt other parts of the body. And in a family unit, you, that's 100%. You know, it's straining the relationship between the spouses. It's creating, you know, it's creating stress and strain on the entire family, and in no way is that that person's fault. I'm not here to say that. Mm-hmm. But we need to strengthen the system where everyone can get the help they need so everyone can do the job they can do to together get towards success. A family unit is meant to be a unit. Those are, it's important to, to hear. I think that we, part of feeling lost as a parent when this is happening is not really acknowledging that there are resources for you as well. That's, that's vital. We're going to take a, a call now. Uh, line one, you're, you're on the air. Good evening. This is Stan. How are you? Hi, Stan. Uh, First of all, uh, I'm, I'm glad the young lady is alive, breathing, and well. That's more important than anything. I mean, that's the more important than anything. The other thing is number two: mental health is the most underfinanced situation in this country. We have all the great diseases that are given hundreds of millions of dollars, 
And mental health, if you look at the numbers, are not that great. I thought they were in the It's not. The government does not really put a lot of money into it. I think the rabbi can speak on that subject. But I wanted to ask the rabbi of this. Uh, I'm going to name at least two people, one I forgot her name. Vincent Van Gogh. Uh, the other one is Robin Williams. And the third was a fashion designer last year, a young woman in her 30s. Kate Spade. Kate Spade. Kate Spade and Robin Williams were people of undeterminate means, money, riches. Yet, there was something so deep in these people. Mm. And got help and still could not do it. Still couldn't do it. Vincent van Gogh was never uh, uh, diagnosed. It mm. was the 19th century. But mm. these two people had unbelievable means, and still, the hurt was so deep that Nobody stopped them. They couldn't know, and they killed themselves. The question I'm asking you is, and maybe you know as a rabbi, you've talked to mental health companies and so doctors. Is it possible that uh, there is a chemical imbalance in the brain? Rabbi, I think that question is for you. Yeah. So first of all, great question. Um, well displayed there. Is it possible? There's definitely such a possibility and each case is a little bit different. In other words, you know, there's not necessarily one way that leads towards suicidal ideation, and there's not one suicidal ideation that leads to suicidal completion. Um, just to give you one study, um, women attempt 11 times more than men, and yet men complete more than women. Um, there's a lot of pieces that come into this puzzle, and one of them potentially is chemical imbalance, and that's also why there's the field of psychiatry. I want to riff a little bit on Stan's question. I appreciate that because often there's a confusion around the meaning between uh, chronic uh, depression or mental illness and situational depression or what's sometimes called triggered suicidal ideation. Rabbi Yodan, do you want to speak to that difference? Is is there a difference or is that a, fa- a false dichotomy? So there's definitely such a difference, and um, they show up in different ways. And actually, as you know, the show focuses on teens, um, a lot of times, because we don't necessarily have the context, we don't necessarily have that long-term history to deal with, as a lot of times is the first time it may be coming to the fore. In certain cases, we do have that history. In other cases, we don't. So a lot of times it looks situational in the teen framework. Mm-hmm. And also, at times, those things can play together, where there is a chronic framework and there is a situational framework. Um, is COVID causing an increase in suicide, or is that a situational component that's straining a current um, situation? You know, a current setting where people had had chronic struggles, and both are true. Both are true in their own sense. Um, it doesn't change the current impact right now. In other words, regardless of how the person got here right now, the ultimate goal is how do I keep them safe right now? Sammy, I understand that you grew up in a religious, somewhat religious framework, and this show is not a Jewish show. Uh, however, the three of us on the phone here are, are Jewish and come from different contexts of religiosity, let's call it. Many of our listeners qualify as faith-oriented from different faiths. And this is may touch a nerve, but I want to ask you, did that make your journey through self-harm and suicidal ideation more or less difficult? Did you feel more or less supported as a result of 
being in a, in a, if I've gotten that correct, by the way, being in a, in a religious or somewhat religious household? For me personally, um, my journey with God shifted dramatically until I was in my rehab at 17 before my relationship was through darkness. I would ask God to kill me. Like, why aren't you? Mm-hmm. And it kind of came through this negative, like, you know, what are you, just, just end it. I need your help. And right. when I was admitted into my treatment facility, I remember feeling really alone and nervous and shy because I didn't know the other kids. And it was really hard in the beginning to make friends or try to find that healthy balance of friendships there. And I remember God became my best friend. <laughs> You know, the only person I could talk to while I was sitting on that couch not knowing who to talk to. We just got a text comment on this is simultaneous to your very raw and open um, sharing, Sammy, uh, that that basically I'm going to edit this a little bit for for content, um, but that it's not allowed that the problem is that it's not allowed in a religious framework. And you hear this a lot. I know in, in Christianity, there's a strong strain of that, that um, it's not, you, you shouldn't be depressed in Judaism. Absolutely. And, and ironically, particularly on the Hasidic path, for example, you often hear that, that depression is, it's fine to, to feel someone else's pain, but you shouldn't wallow in your own. And those are difficult messages to hear because the reality is whether it's quote-unquote allowed or not it's real and in it's part of our individual and collective experience rabbi what do you say to that can it actually be more difficult to discern and help people that are that are in a uh, a more observant religious context um so also you know there's there's a couple questions being asked there. The first one is, is it allowed or not? The second one being, does it make it harder to discern? And I'm going to work backwards. Does it make it harder to discern? Yeah, there's, you know, stigma makes it harder for people to, to be okay with reaching out and asking for help. Stigma makes it harder for people to give any form of invitation. That's 833-859-1933. Operators are standing by. Hi, you're back on Equal Footing. I'm Dove Tuzman. We're here talking about preventing teen suicide with my guests, Sammy Schwartz and Rabbi Yarden Blumstein. We had a text question come in uh, during the the break, which I'm going to direct, I think, at both of you. Let's start with you, Rabbi. As a teen, is there a physiological condition that will eventually go away as the body changes and the suicidal ideation will therefore probably go away as well. I'm assuming this question is being asked like without doing anything. In other words, if I just kind of continue forward and stay strong and if nothing happens, will this naturally go away? Um, The answer is it's possible. Um, and really referring back to, like, the physical framework, like if someone sprains their wrist or, 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 or sprains their ankle or even breaks a bone, is it possible to heal on its own? It's possible. 
but that's a lot to to kind of gamble. And you know, with the with the stakes at play here, why not get the best health? And just like you know, if someone breaks the bone, that can be like, well, you know, this could heal naturally. Hopefully, they're going to bring in a doctor, and hopefully, they're going to do the right work to see how to best make that heal and help them get stronger through the process. And also, as a team entering the framework. They don't know what that turbulence is going to look like. Will this get more intense before it starts easing up? Um, and again, if it's a chemical imbalance, medication can help, therapy is going to help. Um, and none of these things are, you know, good friendship support, being genuine, bringing family into the picture, exercise, sleep, the list is long. These things aren't going to hurt. They only have the potential to help. Sammy, it's an interesting question. You're you're post teen. You're 20. You've you're on the other side of this. You're in in recovery. Do you feel, at a very personal level, that there have been physiological changes, psychological changes in your maturation that have kind of affected this issue beyond the network of support that you've gotten? Um, I think that for me, I could best answer this question in terms of self harm. Um, and how I, and I guess maybe in some way, grew out of it or grew from it into a different slate. Um, I don't know. I think that I use self-harm as a coping skill to survive. And uh, self-harm is a coping skill, and people don't self-harm for no reason. Right. It gives a sense of relief, um, and we need long-term relief instead of the short-term relief that it gives. And I guess... I'd answer that is once I started using alternative coping skills, healthy coping skills, and replaced my unhealthy coping skills, I saw a shift in my actions then to my psyche. You know, it, it's this is great that we get this real-time feedback. As I was writing that, I, I, the same person that asked the question about this potentially being a physiological condition as a, teen, as a teen that goes away over time wanted to clarify that what he meant was, does it get easier? And what I'm hearing from both of you is getting into the problem and having the care and and being understood. It does, maybe easier is not the word, but you, you develop the mechanisms and the tools to cope better as time goes on. It, would that, does that resonate for, for you guys? 100%. Um, 100% that there are solutions out there. And those solutions definitely provide, um, um, can lead towards serenity, peace, hope, um, and joy. Sammy, I also want to share, we just got a, a text from Miriam, who just wants to tell Sammy that she applauds your bravery and courage and wishes you the very best health and happiness going forward. So I wanted to read that to you. I want to, at the here in our last segment, do a couple of, of things. Number one is, and this is on this subject being so sensitive, it may be particularly difficult. Ask you to take a devil's advocacy position and, in a sense, look at the at the issue of prevention of teen suicide from a different perspective, maybe one you've heard, one that worked for someone else but explicitly does not work in your experience but has for others because every person's journey through this is unique. I remember when I was at the apogee of my struggle with suicidal thoughts and planning, 
there were many people that were trying to help me and and very few I was letting in. And there was one rabbi who was visiting me at the time who had absolutely no background in this specific issue, but decided that if he could just create a con- connective tissue for me that was practical, that I would stick around. So he would say, I just, I don't need anything from you other than to be here when I come back in X days, three days, four days, whatever it would be. And that's all I need from you. If you are completely depressed between now and then, if you want to kill yourself between now and then, if you don't sleep between now and then, that's awful, but I'll accept it. The only thing I need from you is to be here next time I'm here. And I don't think that would probably come from a textbook. I I wouldn't recommend that as a tool for others, but it worked for me. So, Sammy, I want to ask you first, something that didn't work for you, but you think might work for others or you've seen work for others. If you could play that advocacy position, what is an alternative narrative around how to approach or care for someone that is at risk of suicide? That is a great and complicated question. Something that didn't work for me but can work for others. Um, something that didn't initial, initially work for me was uh, group therapy. I found it very awkward and a little weird. And, um, and now I think group therapy is so vital in the recovery process. And I think a lot of teens might find comfort through going to support groups and attending group therapy so they can create connections and really see how they are not a lost cause as well as they are not alone. That's great. Yeah, that's that can work for, for some, even if it didn't work for you. Rabbi Yarden, how about you? What what doesn't resonate with you, What the way you actually work with teens, but may work in another context? I love this question because I think this question itself is the answer. Um, In other words, I don't think there's a one-size solution that fits all, and if it didn't work for you, then there's no solution for the person in in need. For some people, DBT is the solution. Other people tend to lean towards CBT or EMDR or group therapy, or for some it's a sleep pattern, psychiatry. The list is, is so long that if it's not working for you, I challenge you to try something else to reach out and find other solutions. Just because one solution didn't work doesn't mean that there isn't a solution that does work. One thing that I I think across the board I would stand behind is not going to work for others and will not work for people is not sharing honestly how you're feeling. Um, Being genuine, being honest, and being willing to ask genuine, honest questions. It's hard to go up to somebody that we care about, that we love, that we're close with, and make a direct question such as, you know, you look down, you're struggling, I need to ask you a very serious question. Are you contemplating suicide? Right. But if we don't ask the direct questions, we're not going to get the direct answers we need to be there for them. We're, we're going to run out of time here. I just want to mention to listeners that one resource, especially if, you, if, if you're in a faith-oriented life path that was helpful for me, is Dr. Gregory Jantz's work, J-A-N-T-Z, who talks to apropos to these last comments from Sammy and Rabbi Yarden about how the current of despair in certain cases can be very swift and the other case, other cases can be very slow and to be completely attuned to the individual and that there's no one size fit all 
one-size-fits-all approach to suicide prevention in teens. Rabbi Oden, we're going to come up here on time. Do you want to mention a couple of resources as we close, and then we'll put in the show notes, uh, call, you know, helplines and other resources? 100%. First of all, the Suicide Prevention Hotline is a great place to start. You mentioned NAMI. Um, Of course, there's 911. There's um, ambulance corps across America trained in this stuff as well. And if you Google looking for help, if you Google looking for suicide prevention resources or addiction resources, they come up. It's worth looking before you need them. So if you want to take one takeaway, look it up now. God bless. Okay, if you are out there listening and you're dealing with this issue of home teen suicide, please reach out to that person, whether you're a parent, whether you're a peer, loved one. Take the step forward. Ask the honest questions. Sammy Schwartz, Rabbi Yerden Bloomstein, thank you so much for joining us on Equal Footing. Blessings. It's